It was always going to be a historic year, but not for the reasons that many of us expected. Any dreams of a world emerging joyfully from the pandemic were dashed swiftly. Whether it's the political musical chairs in Downing Street, the first war on the European continent in a generation, or the death of a long-reigning monarch, 2022 has been breathless, sometimes alarming and always demanding our attention. Eyes journalists have been there, keeping you updated every single step of the way. Welcome to the Eye Podcast, and in this final episode of 2022, we are joined by our editor, Ollie Duff, to give you the inside track on how these major events unfolded inside the Eye newsroom. A grand total of three prime ministers and four chancellors have presided over a tumultuous period in British politics. And while political scandals are nothing new in Westminster, the sheer volume of news coming out of SW1A has kept our lobby team extremely busy. It's been a lot more than palace intrigue. We end the year picking through the economic wreckage, our international reputation in jeopardy. This is how we got here. Ollie, this time last year, we were in the middle of a political scandal dubbed Partygate, which eventually led to the demise of Boris Johnson. What was the first inkling that you had that this story was going to be so big? It's a thread you can trace back to the 3rd of November last year in 2021. Um, We couldn't have predicted the degree of chaos this year, but back in November a year ago, you could see that Boris Johnson had gone too far this time, even for him when his government ordered Tory MPs to tear up ethics rules in Parliament, try and get Owen Paterson off the hook for those lobbying breaches. And Johnson's authority was rocked, you know, he never really recovered. But in our newsroom, the moment that really drew gasps that sticks in my memory, the moment you knew the coup was on, it was the evening of July the 5th this summer, and it was the resignation of Sajid Javid, the health secretary. And when that flashed up on... Um, on Sky and BBC, finally a cabinet minister standing up to him. And minutes later, when Rishi Sunak went as well, also quitting the government in protest at Johnson's conduct, there was really no way back. And that was when you had the 36 hours of record-breaking resignations, followed by that incredibly ungracious resignation speech from Johnson when he attacked the herd mentality of his own MPs and his cabinet, with just no contrition about his own role in the fiasco. That's a real moment, isn't it, in newsrooms? So at I we have big screens all around with with live rolling news updates and when you see a big alert like that flash up it's it's a real collective gasp isn't it so how did you balance Partygate with all the other news out there because it did take up so much attention didn't it how did you kind of ensure that other stuff was going to get reported on as well that's right you know inevitably these sorts of stories across the media do drown out a lot of other reporting that needs to be done and there are real world consequences of that as well now obviously the first thing you can do is task um, some of your other journalists in the newsroom who aren't covering politics and say you need to come up with some exclusives because we're not putting this on the front page every day even if you eventually do you still have to task them with it but in this review of the year i've chosen three stories that cover political chaos you know one for each prime minister They're all exclusives, and I think they tell the story of 2022 rather neatly. And this first story, I think, answers your question a bit. It was in April when Johnson was uh, was Prime Minister, and our political editor, Hugo Jai, and and his deputy, Arj Singh, they had the scoop. 
and it was new laws on house building, on online safety, help for victims of crime. They were all going to be delayed because Johnson was struggling to control Tory MPs after Partygate. This was the Queen's speech and 22 out of 33 bills in it hit the buffers. And yes, you know, in fairness, Covid was a small factor in delays, but our sources in Downing Street were clear. Boris Johnson was delaying these new policies because he feared backbench rebellions, he feared cabinet splits because his personal authority was weakened, and it was paralysing Parliament, paralysing the UK government. I wonder what all of this tells us about Boris Johnson's legacy and how he's going to be remembered as a Prime Minister. What's your take, Ollie? Clearly the two great triumphs of his premiership from his perspective, securing that Brexit referendum win, and I know it came before he was Prime Minister, but he did get a deal over the line where Theresa May struggled. And the other one was taking a true global leadership role on Ukraine. And, uh, you know, the diplomatic role he played there brought in a lot of European leaders behind him. And that's absolutely crucial in what's happened in Ukraine ever, ever since. So he, he deserves great credit there. If you look at Partygate, for instance, you know, the scandal around Boris Johnson, not just there, but on some of his other ethics breaches, it was infecting British political life and having an impact on everyday people's lives. For me, yes, his dishonesty and poor personal conduct were bad enough, but the incompetence for me is the greater crime. And you look at decisions not being made, much needed reforms getting stuck because the PM had squandered his authority, this deepening sense of chaos with the economy flatlining and public services like the NHS struggling, the promised fruits of Brexit not materialising because he didn't have a vision and, and the political skill and the discipline for what came next after winning that vote. Clearly, the pandemic was a black swan uh, event that would derail any premiership. But aside from that, he ran a shambolic operation at number 10. He repeatedly compromised the government with poor personal conduct and lack of integrity. And he had to be hounded from office by his own cabinet ministers. So for all his campaigning talent, he wasn't capable of lasting a single term in power. And as a result, he wasted that opportunity to shape Britain's post-Brexit future. I think that will go down on the historical record alongside that Brexit referendum victory. Tory mutiny has been a theme this year, hasn't it? You know, we talked there about how difficult it was for Boris Johnson to kind of hold on to the reins. All three PMs have struggled to pass legislation. I can't believe I'm saying that, all three PMs, but all three PMs have struggled to pass legislation without support from various wings of the party. We sort of spotted here at I, didn't we, early signs that the turbulence was going to rock Truss's short premiership. What was it that our team revealed which gave a hint that the mini-budget was not going to go to plan? Yes, this was back on uh, August the 17th or 18th. It was mid-August. It was a full five weeks before Truss and Quasi Kwarteng tanked the British economy by announcing those massive tax cuts without a plan on how to afford them. And the headline on this scoop was Liz Truss warned of black hole in her tax plan by budget watchdog. This was Hugo and Arge again. They were first for a major development which eventually jettisoned Truss's premiership. But they'd learned that the Office for Budget Responsibility, uh, Britain's watchdog on our public finances, was going to downgrade its forecast. And it was going to tell Truss that she had billions of pounds less than she thought to fund tax cuts if she became PM. But she didn't want to know. She stuck her head in the sand, became PM sideline the OBR and the rest is history. So when did it become clear to you that Liz Truss was going to be toppled? Pretty quickly after the mini budget, I think. I mean, the reason being that as the markets headed very quickly in the wrong direction, you know, her response to this self-inflicted disaster was just so inadequate. Denial and hubris when reassurance 
uh, was needed. I think her downfall really crystallised, though, about a fortnight later. It was um, it was early October, I think the 7th, uh, and that was when our lobby team brought in another scoop. It was Arj Singh, uh, Jane Merrick and Paul War, and they had the exclusive on the planned Tory coup. It's a hell of a story. And this happened two weeks later in the way they said, and their headline was, Senior Tories plot to install Rishi Sunak as caretaker PM to prevent election meltdown. Two weeks later, that's what happened. You know, the letters of no confidence started going into uh, Sir Graham Brady, uh, backbench supremo. I always, I always see him as the Conservative Party's uh, Albert Beerpoint, you know, England's last hangman. <laughs> He's got a lot of experience now in... Uh, dispatching zombie prime ministers with dignity or as much dignity as can be mustered in the circumstances but you know in our newsroom when the, when the coup de grace came with trust i just remember being grateful you know fifth conservative pm in six years that it didn't happen at 8 p.m on a friday it's the busiest <laughs> time of the week for us all political infighting is one thing but something far more serious erupted on europe's eastern flank at 5 a.m on a crisp thursday morning in february Vladimir Putin unleashed his forces against neighbouring Ukraine, setting off a chain of events that will dictate the geopolitical landscape for decades. Events like this bring in every corner of the newsroom, and as the war grinds on, I journalists have uncovered key details from the conflict and beyond. The invasion of Ukraine shocked people, even after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. What was your approach to handling this as events began to unfold? Well, we obviously reported from Ukraine, and I can talk about that more in a minute, but also where it wasn't possible to go to one of the front lines, you, you try to rely on insight and commentary from trusted experts who are in Ukraine so that you can dig behind those basic headlines that anyone can get on the BBC. We also use data journalism to try to reveal the macro picture and to tell those hidden stories about Putin's master plan. We can come to that in a minute. And we tried to follow the money, the ways that European countries have continued to trade extensively with, with Putin, despite their rhetoric, because of their reliance on Russian energy. You mentioned there our reporting um, from Ukraine. And during those first early days of the invasion, we had very vivid reports coming out of the capital, Kiev, as citizens and reporters alike started to flee. Chief News Correspondent David Parsley was out there. Tell us a bit about what that experience was like from his perspective, but also from yours. Sure. I mean, just before the war began, we were scrambling David and working with security advisors and with other media publishers to try and get him in Kiev. He got there and within 12 hours the war started. It was We knew it was coming, but it was much quicker than most people on the ground anticipated, including most Ukrainians. I was chatting to David yesterday for his recollections of that time. He sent me this message. My hotel windows were rattling as Russian missiles started to hit the capital. I WhatsApped the office Ukraine group saying, it started. Amy, that's our deputy editor, she called me immediately in the middle of the night and said, what started? I said, the war. She asked, how do you know? And I replied, because I can see missiles and explosions out of my window. That was a weird conversation. The contact with the office was crucial from then on in. We were quite worried because David's hotel was about 100 metres from the foreign ministry, which was a concern because it could be a target. And as Russian forces marched on Kiev, there were, there were fears that Putin would turn his fire on civilians or journalists who stayed behind. There's a lot of talk about potential use of a thermobaric weapon, which is very frightening for people involved. 
or that Russian forces might shoot people who stayed behind, including reporters. So the logistical challenge became getting journalists and civilians away from the highest risk areas. And, and David used this in his reporting. He had missiles raining down and, and the judgment call for all of us was whether and when we should pull out our reporter. And it was the biggest challenge for us and for David. He remembers of that time, you know, we were told the Russians would be in the capital by Saturday morning and that we had a choice leave ASAP or stay and get arrested or shot. So we published David's account of that escape with thousands of other people, and it was one of the most memorable reports I read during those early weeks of the conflict. After a night of bombing, they joined a, a convoy out of Kiev. They had to endure big explosions from nearby missile strikes. There was gunfire next to the convoy. Near one checkpoint, they saw a couple of dozen bodies by the side of the road. The reporters thought these people were dead, but Ukrainian forces stopped them from getting out of the car to investigate, so we don't know. The worst part of the trip, though, for David wasn't any of that. He said it was it was reaching the Slovak border where uh, he saw tens of thousands of families queuing to escape the country. Men staying behind, separated from their wives and kids. I've never seen anything like it, he said. People had driven for days to get to the border. They'd taken what they could fit into their cars. It was the saddest thing I've ever seen. Families not knowing if they would see each other again. And you asked about what it's like for the editors back in the office. We're sitting on our on our swivel chairs in total safety. Back in the UK, you feel powerless, you know, on the one hand, but you also know you have to be on your game. Reporters are relying on the team in the newsroom to keep them as safe as they can, ultimately to get them out. And people like our deputy editor, Amy Higgledon, our managing editor, Tal Gotsman, head of news, Mark Davies, and our office manager, Michelle Walsh, they were at the heart of all this. The shameful coda to this bit for me is uh, on the day the war started, I was in Egypt on a family holiday. <laughs> so I was in absolutely no position to be of any use to anyone. I was locked in conference calls in a hotel bathroom while my kids slept next door. It was one surreal scene where I was next to the hotel swimming pool that day with my two-year-old daughter. I was on the phone trying to help a friend who was in Kiev, who's a war reporter there, to find a safe hotel room. And on the other end of the line, I could hear the missile strikes. It's just in the wrong place. So, Gosh, wow. Once the initial shock of, of all of this began to subside, there was so much, wasn't there, in terms of work to do to find out what was going on within Ukraine and within Russia. Our investigations correspondent, Dean Kirby, revealed an absolutely shocking story. Can you tell us a bit about what he found beyond Russian borders? That's right. For outsiders, those of us who are very far from a conflict, war reporting it can sometimes take on the form of football match reports. And I'm being flippant, but you'll know what I mean. You know, this town has been attacked, missiles struck there, such and such infrastructure crippled, a tragedy here. Some people who are very far from a war have very big hearts. They can absorb all of this coverage. But lots of people tune out to some of it. It's a sort of psychological defence mechanism. So for me, a really big story that stood out on Ukraine was a world exclusive. Uh, it was by Dean, as you say. And he revealed how Moscow had prepared so-called filtration camps for Ukrainians to be forcibly deported hundreds of miles inside Russian borders. And the way he did this, he used satellite imagery to reveal the location of these camps. And then in a series of follow-up stories, he got testimony from inside the camps, what was happening to Ukrainians taken there, the really grim conditions, how some of them faced interrogations and were threatened with death. This tactic of deporting people to the camps appeared to be used to terrify inhabitants of besieged cities like Mariupol, you know, people who dared to stay behind or support Ukrainian forces. And Dean's story, it, it changed understanding in the West around Putin's treatment of the Ukrainian people, how far he was willing to go, and also the preparations that went into this invasion. 
and we were proud of Dean's work. You know, his investigation was picked up and directly referenced at White House briefings by the U.S. State Department, the U.N. He's been shortlisted for various journalism awards, unsurprisingly. For me, that's the sort of journalism we want. You know, you're using every tool at your disposal. You're working with all sorts of useful third parties. In this case, you know, access to satellite imagery who can bring their own expertise to tell these urgent stories that really get beyond the daily casualty figures. And what I find remarkable always about Dean's story there was how he did this all from a back bedroom in Manchester. You know, the level of skill that you have to know where to start with something like that, I just find that gobsmacking. Completely. You have to have an eye for the original angle. You have to be consuming so much other coverage on Ukraine to know that no one else has thought of the satellite angle. And then you've got to be very persuasive with the people who do have access to this. Fortunately, there are third parties like that who could see the merits in working with the media to get this story out there. But then you have to be really methodical in the way you build the evidence and and, uh, seek a lot of expertise, you know, that we don't necessarily have in-house to try and make sense of the images you see. It's just uh, amazing, amazing work. Understandably, the British public feel very strongly about supporting Ukrainians and the UK government has sanctioned Russian oligarchs. But Kahal Milmo, our chief reporter, broke a story at the beginning of the month showing how many of us may be inadvertently filling up our cars with Russian diesel this winter. Tell us a bit about what you found. 2022 was the year which broke any pretense that Putin is a man to do business with. Yet, European states continue trading with Moscow to a great extent because of their reliance on on Russian energy. Just a couple of weeks ago then, Kahal, he revealed that UK motorists are filling Putin's coffers because of a loophole in the Russian oil ban. The problem is at the EU end, it's not in Britain. The UK banned Russian diesel. The EU postponed that ban until February. So as a result, there's a last minute rush on imports of Russian diesel. You know, they're rocketing ahead of that deadline. Kahal, he got hold of oil industry data, normally very boring, but it shows that imports of Russian diesel via via ships into the EU has risen to its highest level since the start of the Ukraine war. And once it gets to European ports like Antwerp or Rotterdam, it goes into these vast storage tanks before heading onwards to other countries like the UK. And so you never really know where it comes from. And that's how it ends up in Britain. Uh, So basically, Russian diesel, yes, still be sent to UK garage forecourts via the EU until February, despite Britain's own ban. Why does it matter? It's funding Putin's war machine. You know, Russia earned £135 billion from energy exports in the first six months of the war. Stay tuned to inews.co.uk for daily coverage of the most important news from across the country, straight from our team of award-winning journalists and commentators. Reporting like this, without fear or favour, is important. An iDigital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news, whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted non-partisan news and we have a special offer for listeners of our podcast. For more coverage of this and all other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. In return, you get uninterrupted access to all of our journalism. That includes exclusive newsletters from expert correspondents, access to our app, plus dozens of puzzles every single day. I 
for open minds. Subscribe today. 2022 also marked the end of the second Elizabethan age, which started with an empire and ended with Britain as an influential but second tier state. Over seven tumultuous decades, the Queen was one of the few constants in many people's lives. Here's how we tried to write the first draft of history. You've been editor-in-chief for nine years now. Have you always had a plan for what would happen when the time came? Obviously, you prepare obituary packages for lots of major figures in public life. It's ghoulish, but it means that when someone important does die, you can really pay tribute to their life and work explain what made them so remarkable. The death of the Queen is obviously on a very different scale. We've been preparing for years. There were several false alarms too, which helped to ready us. But these preparations, they were stepped up in 2017. That was when the existence of Operation London Bridge was leaked. This was the previously secret plan in the government and the BBC for what would happen in the days after the Queen's death. And that leak itself, it was a warning to newsrooms, among all, the, all other sorts of organisations, to get ready. So our plan, it was pinned to the wall of my office. The digital copies were shared with every editor at I. And I kept a printout in the glove box of my car for two years and took it on holidays with me. Did you? I yeah, did yeah. not know that. It could happen any time and you don't know what sort of signal you're going to have. Now, Ollie, can we demystify something for our listeners? Is there an alarm that goes off in the newsroom when a monarch dies? Yes. Possibly not, the, possibly not the answer you're expecting, but yes, we had a system set up, which was emails, text messages and phone calls. And basically, when Operation London Bridge was activated, if you were senior exec on this list, you would be rung, you would be emailed and you would be texted until you answered a call or you replied saying, I have received, you know, and they would just ring you because, of course, it could be any time of the night, any day of the week. Um, if you fast forward to that day on the 8th of September, it worked slightly differently to that. That morning, a source told us that they were, quote, hearing worrying news today about the Queen's health. Now, you don't publish that, but given the, given the source, it was all we needed to know. And an hour later, the palace released that first statement saying uh, her doctors were concerned about her health, recommend she remain under medical supervision, she's comfortable. But in the background, at the same time, we were told by a different source that she was in a critical condition. And it was a matter of hours, not days, before further news was released. Last night, I spoke to Chief Reporter Carl Milmo. He's been integral over the past few years in the planning for this day. And I asked him for his memories of it. What happened on the 8th of September? This is what he said. I think the main feeling was a sort of slow dawning. Blimey, this is it. It was a moment long prepared for and to some extent dreaded because it was going to stretch every journalistic sinew. I was working on something else, but got a message to drop everything and get the royal packages fully updated. It felt a bit like the point when the nuclear missiles moved from DEFCON 2 to DEFCON 1. This was the moment at which all the, insert Queen's age here, insert location of death here, insert <laughs> number of prime ministers here, caveats in the news pieces and obits, were filled in and finalised. This material was years in the making, but it was being checked ready to go. After that, though, it was eerily smooth. The moment of the announcement felt in a strange way unsurprising because reality and rumour had already adjusted to her death. It was just a matter of getting on with it and doing it well. I remember that day very clearly. 
um, because I was put on the kind of standby duty to hit that article and write that initial line that she had passed away. Um, and I remember I got a call in the morning from our deputy head of news and, and head of breaking news, Hattie Collier, to say, listen, we've had this tip off. Don't mention it to anyone, not even other colleagues at the paper. Just sit on it until we tell you what to do. But we need you to know that it might be today. And I basically packed my bag up so that I was ready to go. It was the one day that I was working from home. I never worked from home. Um, what, was, what did it feel like? God, the adrenaline really started to hit. And you know what it's like in the newsroom. We cover, you know, fast breaking news all the time. And there is a, an adrenaline that you can feel starts coursing when something really big is happening. But there was a sense of disbelief because we'd seen her in those pictures with Liz Truss two days before. So you think there's no way that she could, you know, be going to pass away that short time after meeting Liz Truss at Balmoral to appoint her as the new prime minister. So I got ready to go. And then eventually I got the call from her saying, we think it's, it's imminent. Please come into the office as soon as possible. And I remember trying to call a taxi and it was the one day that no Ubers would take me anywhere. And I sprinted to the tube stop. I ran all the way down the road and then down the stairs to the tube and right into the newsroom. And it was just manic. I mean, you'll remember it sort of started then and it, it didn't finish for, for for weeks, really. You know, it was relentless, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't most, it? yeah I, I think it's probably the most frenetic fortnight. I've, I mean, I've been doing this job one, sort of way, one way or another for 20 years and it's the most frenetic relentless news agenda partly because there was a lot happening partly because of the real you know shift in people's understanding of you know what sort of country we're living in you know sort of posed all sorts of questions about the future and also because you're trying to be quite imaginative in your coverage so that you're not resorting to cliche yeah absolutely and some of it had been pre-prepared you know articles that we you know knew about Prince Philip and, and and the Queen's marriage or things like that. But there was so much, I was surprised by how much that was still reactionary to what was going on at that moment. You know, you really couldn't prep all this. No, you could, because you can never really know what the mood of the nation yeah. was. Yeah. There was a lot of talk about a nation in mourning. And that was true in a sense. But also when you spoke to people, the, the, to the mood was, individuals weren't, some people were, but there were lots of people who weren't mourning exactly. They were celebrating or wanting to honour and mark this person going. And of course, there's a broader spectrum of opinion. Some people who are non-royalist didn't like the volume of coverage. On that, I mean, what are the challenges when you're trying to strike that tone? As you mentioned earlier, we're strictly neutral at eye and always try and reflect all sides of, of an argument. But you also have to be respectful for someone who's just passed away and their significance in, in world history. How did you approach that? Yeah, I was thinking of examples before it came on. I mean, there was a really thoughtful piece from James Nockerty, who the BBC correspondent on the day of the Queen's funeral. He wrote this big piece for I. We are now entering a period of deep national uncertainty. And I, I felt it captured the significance of this moment, the end of the Elizabethan age for royalists and republicans alike. He praised Charles's life in training for the role, but he also noted that the wave of goodwill for him in the wake of his mother's death, that that would be quite transitory, you know, it wouldn't necessarily last. And that while Charles, it would be popular, his plan to slim down the monarchy, his determination to modernise the monarchy was also fraught with risk. You know, James said... Um, I think it was something like the battle for relevance is going to put pitfalls in his path, basically. And I guess the Queen's death, it forced all of, all of us to ask, what sort of country do we want to be? You know, not exactly a national identity crisis, and, but more of a national identity conversation that we haven't had for a long time. One of the other pieces that comes to mind, it was this really well 
argued opinion article. I didn't see anything like it elsewhere. Eyes Patrick Strudwick, he's a really good journalist, just been shortlisted at the Press Awards for Feature Writer of the Year and also for uh, Excellence in Diversity. He wrote a piece, The Queen Was a Quiet LGBT Ally. Patrick used to lean towards republicanism and he acknowledged that empire doesn't sit well with, with people fighting for equality. But now his argument was that in losing the Queen, we lose our link to who we once were and how we changed for the better. Patrick's piece he sort of drew this, this narrative arc of the LGBT liberation movement through history, from prison cells to pride marches, from the chemical castration of Alan Turing, the code breaker who helped win the war, to his eyes fixing our gaze on the £50 note. And of course, the Queen on the other side of that note. He argued that the Queen's absence of any judgment sort of gave this, allowed this impression to form that uh, she accepted, in Patrick's words, all her nation's children without question. And of course, we saw LGBT people move from the shadows in public life to the spotlight on honours lists. So it was an argument I didn't see anyone else make, you know, original, thought-provoking and compelling. 2022 has been a year of monumental events, but there are always stories that aren't part of the daily news cycle, yet still hold resonance for our readers. Here at I, we often choose to do things differently. And you've picked a story which you feel was underreported this year. Can you tell us a bit about what you've chosen and why? Well, I'm really irritated that it's you hosting this podcast, Molly. <laughs> because I was going to choose some of your reporting, but now I've got to be nice to you. And it's just going to look really <laughs> fawning. So, you know, gr- I, I'm fine with that, you know. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you are. You know, grudgingly, I'm choosing your reporting from a migrant rescue boat in the Med this summer, oh, the Ocean wow. Viking. The reason I'm choosing it is because, you know, migration, it's an issue where there's a lot of coverage. Lots of people have an opinion one way or another. Very few reporters actually meet these people risking their lives and the children's lives on smuggler routes across the Med or the English Channel to find out their stories, you know, what motivates them to take these risks, what they hope for, what they fear, let alone actually be there when they're in real peril or being plucked out of the sea. And for me, you know, one of the most harrowing reports you filed was how parents routinely lose their children on the journey. And and I guess from a a navel-gazing eye perspective, you know, it felt like a really strong package. It was your written journalism, obviously, but also the video reporting, you know, three weeks of testimony caused political ructions in Brussels and London. And, you know, no surprise, you've been shortlisted for Young Journalist of the Year. I think I can actually see your head swelling. <laughs> no longer fits in my <laughs> headphones. We'll move on to the next topic in a moment before you suffer permanent medical damage. But, uh, <laughs> listen, you know, while I was involved in signing off the project, you know, sending a reporter away three weeks on a boat and the sort of safety considerations and so on, um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about it. I mean, why did you think it was a good time to go there and to, to do that piece of reporting? Here in the UK, for obvious reasons, there's a lot more of a focus on the channel. But obviously, to get to the channel, people have come through other parts of the world. And I wanted to just track that journey a little bit further back, you know, to work out where people were reaching Europe the first time. But also because that route in particular that I was reporting on from Libya to Italy is the deadliest migration route in the world. The other reason that I wanted to to, to go now is because it feels like the debate around migration in the UK has become really charged and often quite detached from reality. It feels like there's a lot of people shouting at each other and not speaking to anyone actually at the heart of this. Um, And I wanted to go with eyes neutrality and just get to the heart of it. What's actually going on? Why are people actually making these journeys? What do these rescues look like, feel like, sound like? 
and stop just sort of shouting at each other across the aisle. There are no perfect solutions to higher levels of migration, right? With global migration, it's going to dramatically increase. You know, new wars, climate change, growing populations, the wealth gap. And so long as Britain is a prosperous country, we're going to be an attractive destination. But yeah, what appealed to me about that piece of reporting was it wasn't abstract. These were real people's stories, you know, which looking back on it now, you know, because you've got the benefit of hindsight where you're not cloistered in that cabin you had to stay in for three weeks, you know, yeah. what are the moments that stayed with you? I remember the first rescue very vividly. I had to be trained as part of the rescue crew so that I knew what was going on, basically, and wasn't going to make things worse. So we'd spent about a week at sea or around the port um, in Sicily training for these rescues. So you use dummies and you simulate the situation and they throw you all around on these small rubber boats. But to actually see people in real need for the first time is a moment that I will never forget. So the way it works is you get a call on your radio, which you have to have on you the whole time, crew or reporter. Um, and it says all crew, all crew ready for rescue. And they repeat that. And then you have just a couple of minutes to run upstairs and get your waterproof gear and your kit on. And for me, a camera and a microphone and all those other things which I needed. And then you get in these smaller rescue boats, which are attached to the larger humanitarian ship, and they send you off out into the sea. And you never know what you're going to find. And the moment that I really recall, because you're under the scorching sun of, of the Mediterranean in the middle of summer, was seeing a black dot on the horizon. And as we sped towards it, it getting bigger and bigger until suddenly you could see people. And I will never forget the moment that that black dot emerged into dozens and dozens of faces of people screaming for help as their dinghy was essentially sinking. And it was it was a moment that I'll never forget. Um, and the other one was the first time that I was witnessing a rescue with children. Um, often there's teenagers, that's quite common. So a third of the people that were rescued on the ship while I was there were um, sort of unaccompanied minors, so under 18s, but predominantly teens. But there was a, a rescue which was the most dangerous of, of any that, that I witnessed while I was there, where people were actually overboard by the time that the rescue crews got there and the dinghy that they were on were deflating. And I remember them handing a child, a, a screaming baby. They actually initially gave them to me because I was the only person with hands. Um, and the baby just howling. And then another three children being picked up by that one arm and handed from the sinking dinghy to the rescue crew. And these children looking around, having no idea what was going on. You know, they were sort of three, four years old. They can't even begin to conceive of what's happening to them and how the rescue that they're experiencing will change their lives forever. You know, it, it was a life or death moment and they had no idea. And over the course of the days that I was on the ship then, after they were being rescued, watching them just be kids, you know, because they're at the centre of such a political row and such a life or death humanitarian situation. And they're just children. Really weird juxtaposition. It was huge. The sort of fire and fury of the debate around migration, yeah. not just in Britain, but in other parts of Europe. And at the same time, you see children running around on deck. Yeah, it's the Just innocence. trying to be children, you know, as they would in any country at any time. Exactly. Just playing and, and having no idea, you know, the significance of, of what they're in the middle of. And also, you know, you mentioned juxtapositions. It was a real lurch from the moment where people think that they're going to die on the water to the moment that they realise they've been rescued. That level of elation and relief is something I've never seen. You know, women stepping on board 
crying their eyes out and kissing the floor of the deck. Sometimes families being reunited, having been rescued at separate times, but being reunited on the ship. Um, so there was such a high and low to the whole thing, which was was quite jarring at times, actually. What do you think the um, what do you think the small boat crossings in the Med can tell us about these English Channel crossings that are the subject of many headlines at the moment? Yeah, particularly after the the disaster that we saw earlier this month. I think it's twofold, really. On the one hand, they tell us something factually because I interviewed people who did want to reach the UK as their final destination. So many who were from sub-Saharan Africa, um, particularly when they had kind of colonial era ties to the UK. You know, they were in countries colonised by the UK, so they speak the language, they feel a connection. Um, And many of them were going to make that journey across Europe to France and then try and cross the channel. So it gives us a direct sense of where people are coming from and what that route to the UK is like. But I also think um, the reporting, in particular the video reports, give a sense of what the experience is like. So often when people are crossing the channel, we don't know exactly what that feels like, you know, or why they're making that journey. often because people aren't willing to to talk about what happened, either because they're traumatised or because of fears around their immigration status or anything like that. So it can be very hard to work out what's going on as an experience on the channel. And I think seeing those rescues and seeing the overpacked dinghies with no life jackets, with people with no shoes, it tells you a lot more about what people actually go through on that route. So not just how they get there, but what they're experiencing and why. But if someone's crossed the Med, you know, the English Channel is not going to stop them. No, I think this was the thing that, that really struck me. For these people, some of them have made the journey. I met one guy who'd made the journey seven times. This was his seventh attempt to cross to Italy. And each time he'd either been caught by the Libyan Coast Guard when he'd set off on the coast, or he'd ended up in the water and been rescued. There was nothing that was going to deter that man from reaching Italy you know from reaching Europe and similarly with people trying to get to the UK specifically they said that was their dream it's the only place where they speak the language or they might have a family connection. The man who's tried to get there seven times is the man you want to hire. I was struck by that the level of resilience determination um, to to build better lives and to start businesses or to you know sort of participate in society people really wanted to make a contribution, I think, as well as make a better life for themselves. It seems there's no chance of the news cycle slowing down just yet. Let's look forward to 2023 and pull back the curtain on what I has to offer next year. Our reporters have broken many exclusives this year and brought to light a huge volume of new information, which has really changed the conversation on all sorts of things from LGBT rights in Qatar to the state of mouldy homes in Britain. Can you give us any insight into what our listeners can expect for next year? Yes, well, unoriginally more exclusives, you know, it's what we're in the business of. But uh, the areas we're prioritising, you see politics, health, science, the environment the cost of living challenges that so many people face, and also the terrible hand that young people have been dealt in pandemic and cost of living crisis. Second thing, tough scrutiny of this government and of Labour. I've spoken of that already. And the third thing is a few laughs in there. More laughs. <laughs> We've all been through a lot past three years. I want to put a smile on people's faces. You know, I always say in our newsroom, most people don't wake up in the morning wanting to feel more miserable about the world. So more wit and satire, 
Uh, particularly, you can do that in your opinion writing, your feature writing. A bit more fun then, a bit more fun after a hell of a year. Do you have any specific stories in mind? Can I push you? Yes, I do. I'm not going to reveal much. But if I had to choose a story on our radar for 2023, um, well, listen, I don't, if, you were, if you're one of the people who got so furious this year, Molly, about uh, water companies pumping a lot more sewage into Britain's rivers and seas, me too. And we're going to do something about it in our coverage report, investigations, holding the people responsible to account. And um, if you're a water company executive listening to this, who's presiding over this torrent of filth, dig out your swimming trunks. Look forward to a dip in a polluted waterway near you, splashing through the brown tide. I'll be standing on the uh, water's edge holding the towel. <laughs> Think um, John Gummer, the agriculture minister, who uh, at the height of BSC sat there with his young daughter eating British beef burgers. If, um, if listeners would like some of that to happen, please do consider taking out a digital subscription to I. I'm sure Molly will tell you more in a minute. But as the editor, I can promise you lively journalism, honest reporting and holding villains to account. Well, that sounds good to me. Thank you so much, Ollie, for joining us. Thank you. That's it for the iPodcast for 2022. Thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We will be back next week with more exclusive stories dropping weekly into your favourite podcast app. Head to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and grab yourself a special 20% off digital and print subscriptions for more daily coverage from I. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk. And please, please do write us a review if you enjoy the show. It makes a big difference and helps other podcast listeners to find us. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at Molly.Blackall. Thanks for listening and we will see you all in 2023.